If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. To modernize our continental defenses and to protect Canadians from new and emerging threats. This is the most significant upgrade to NORAD from a Canadian perspective in almost four decades. Welcome aboard, folks. A big announcement today from Defence Minister Anita Anand. The Canada is going to spend $4.9 billion over the next six years to help modernize North America's defence systems. And certainly, I think there are those who say, well, it's about time Canada steps up on continental defense. We want the benefits of this partnership with the Americans and the protection that NORAD provides. We need to be a reliable partner. There's some confusion, though, following the announcement as to whether this is actually new money that's been announced. As Global's Mercedes Stevenson has noted, that the speech today from the minister uh, stated that this was new money. Uh, The minister's office has now said that that $4.9 billion was already allocated for in the budget, that the office will be issuing a a correction. So some confusion there. Also, on the point about new and emerging threats, does that include missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles? Certainly could be a threat to North American security, but this is a part of that defense that Canada doesn't want to be a part of. We opted out of ballistic missile defense way back in 2005, and today Anand says Canada's position has not changed. The reality is that we will continue to look at this policy going forward. We will engage in constant analysis of the policy to ensure that Canada has a proper response to missile threats across the board. Well, joining us to talk about the future of NORAD, the future of uh, bilateral uh, bilateral cooperation on continental defense. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jim Ferguson, uh, Deputy Director of the Center for Defense and Security Studies, Professor of the Department of Political Studies, University of Manitoba. Professor Ferguson, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. I'm glad to be here. Well, the fact that we're not even sure if this is new money being announced today, the, the whole announcement was maybe a little rushed or confusing. Um, what, what, what do you make of that, first of all? Well, it's it's an interesting point because I listened to the speech in the Q&A from the media afterwards, and she said it was new money. I was surprised that was new money because the $8 billion uh, addition to the defense budget in the 2022 budget, we have had no details on where it's going. So I expected this announcement would then explain that portion of that $8 billion, which would go to uh, North American defense modernization. So when she said it was new, I was really surprised. And mm-hmm. That's a lot of money, at least in my view. And then you raise questions about if $4.9 billion is new, going to NORAD or North American Defense Modernization, what's the other $8 billion besides the Ukrainian support? Where is that going? And I'm not surprised at all from Mercedes, from, uh, Mercedes uh, reference and that the gov- 
department's going to uh, change this, that it's not new money. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Interesting. So when we t- let's take a step back. When we talk about NORAD modernization and, and where this, this money is going, the government is going to spend, what is it we're talking about here? Well, for the government, listening to the defense minister and as well as the chief of the defense staff and the deputy commander of NORAD, uh, by and large, its focus is not surprising on northern approaches, re- renewing, modernizing, expanding, improving the North Warning System. Yet at the same time, they talk about the need to ensure that North American defense and cooperation with the United States is 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. So we're only interested in the northern part. Well, we have maritime approaches, and we need to cooperate more with the Americans because the threat environment has changed significantly. So that becomes a bit of a problem for me, and it's not surprising because that's what I thought the government was going to do. For them, it's about the north. And the north is important. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, Improving our surveillance detection capabilities in the north for intercept purposes to enhance North American deterrence posture and our defeat posture, if necessary, is vitally important. But this is the problem with Canada. We think about this in very narrow terms instead of thinking about it in much broader terms in terms of North America. And how does that affect the, the relationship with the United States? Then? Well, at the end of the day, it, it, strangely enough, it doesn't have a great impact on the United States. Uh, the United States sits there and waits to see what we're going to do and where we're going to fund and support, and then fills in the blanks. Uh, you call them gap fillers for mm-hmm. us. So, if you, for example, when the question was asked about the maritime approaches in the Pacific and Atlantic and sea launch cruise missiles, either from submarines or surface vessels, the answer we got was, well, the Americans are going to do this. Well, that's insufficient for us. We have to do more than we normally do. But over all the years I've studied NORAD and North American Defense Cooperation, the Americans sort of take what they get and then solve the problem themselves. So I don't think it's going to be a problem in Canada-U.S.-North American defense cooperation, but we could be doing much more. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good friend for, for Canada to have. It doesn't make us really a, a reliable, dependable partner, though, does it? Well, no. It's, it's, but in some ways, we're no different from the other allies in Europe. Yeah. Uh, we're reliable. The allies in Europe are reliable. We're sort of dependable. But at the end of the day, the Americans have to fill all the gaps, which for whatever political reasons or funding economic reasons or social reasons, we're not willing to do. And the key problem, I've argued this for many years now, is we have to stop thinking that North American defense and our contribution is simply the Arctic and the northern approaches. We have to be much more a reliable partner. And I think we need to be a more reliable partner. But the government is still, in many ways, we're still locked into the Cold War. Well, in the question of, of threats that, you know, that, that missiles and missile technology can, can pose, and I think increasingly that's, that's the, the worry that, you know, that, that this technology is advancing, these, these missiles can reach, you know, further distances. And so we've got this awkward situation where we're cooperating on, on continental defense, but not on, on missile defense. So how much of a problem is that? Well, we heard it from... If you think, if you look at what the defense minister said, we're going to keep looking at this issue about ballistic missile defense. Then the chief of the defense staff, if I remember correctly, came out and talked about 
the Americans are doing integrated air and missile defense. Hypersonics are not ballistic missiles, but they're not cruise missiles. They're, they sort of blur that boundary. Uh, this is an issue which the government has to come, basically has to do an about face. And of course, that's politically problematic for them. Uh, if the Americans, and from what I've studied on this, the Americans are integrating air defense and missile defense capabilities, including ballistic missile defense, and that's an important issue for all of North America and for Canada, we have no choice but to start to get on board with this. Now, there are issues involved here. And in terms of if we say we want to participate in all these levels, cruise missiles, advanced cruise missiles, hypersonic vehicles, and ballistic missiles, exactly what's the parameters in terms of American thinking about how what we can and cannot do? And that's always been a problem for Canada. Uh, so this is a really big issue, and the government doesn't seem to have yet come to get its head around it. I think the military has. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly NORAD, I believe, has gotten around to it. It says we can't stay out of this. Right. So all of this that we're investing in, the, the, the radar in the north, the sensors in the north, which, as you say, we're a little narrowly focused on the north. But what is it that all of this radar and, and sensors are, are to be tracking in the first place? Well, they're designed primarily... And it's hard to know whether the systems they're talking about, and from my understanding, what they're basically talking about is over-the-horizon backscatter radar radars, which are radar networks. They're not the big phased array radars that the Americans use for the missile defense program and for their early warning program. Uh, it's, it's sort of difficult to know. And if you look at what the defense capabilities that the minister talked about, well, we're going to acquire advanced air-to-air missiles. Well, that's not going to be sufficient for this. How, what, is, what is meant by a layered system? Are they talking about back to the 50s when the Dew Line, the Mid-Canada Line, the Pine Tree Line were developed, three lines of radar? Are we going back to that? We just don't know. I mean, the devil's in the details here. And the government needs to be a lot more clear. And I understand a lot of this is highly classified, top secret, because you can't give this information out in the public domain, but the government needs to be a little more uh, clear, I guess clear is the word, but a little more, uh, I can't think of the right word right now, a little, a little I, I'll leave with clear, yeah. a little more clear about exactly what all this means and where these lines are going. They're not going to be big radars as far as I understand, but again, when they talk about long-range radars to the high Arctic, and she said that the technological problems have been solved. I don't know if they have, uh, because you have a lot of problems in terms of radar using backscatter, which bounces off the ionosphere, uh, into the high Arctic, where you have, for example, uh, the Northern Lights, which screw it all up. So whether they've solved that or not, I don't know. But there are a lot of big issues here. Uh, that is probably going to cost a lot more than the four four point nine billion that they've assigned to this. In terms of moving forward, and, and the minister alluded to, you know, on the question of missile defense, we'll continue looking at this, et cetera. I mean, you know, two thousand five was a long time ago. I think the politics of the day and, and the Kretschy and Bush dynamic that that all played into that decision. I think. I think we're far removed from all of that. Why, why is why is this still? I mean, this is essentially a political matter still, isn't it? Well, that's a really good question, because I don't understand it. 
as the government increasingly has talked about this, and even though in the 2017 defense policy, we said we weren't going to participate, there's been no public reaction to it. Even the attentive public, the anti-missile defense public, has not said very much, and they might coming down the road. I don't know, but the government is free to move wherever it wants to go. Uh, so all I can figure out is that within the government circles, within the liberal government, uh, that they have some latent fears about missile defense, but those are, are all dead. Missile defense is here and now. Everyone's got them. The Russians have them. The Chinese have them. The Indians are developing them. We've, the Americans have sold them to, the, to our NATO allies and to uh, uh, the Saudis and others in the Gulf states. We're living in a world of missile defense. We better get up to the modern age. And somehow, I don't know why, it's hard to explain why the government mm -hmm. seems to be reluctant to move forward, except on the issue of what does particip participation mean for, mean for us? Exactly how do we deal with this and what do we get out of it? That's the key political question and strategic question. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there, Professor Ferguson. Appreciate the insight. Uh, as always, thanks for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, this is Jim Ferguson, Deputy Director of the Center for Defense Studies, uh, Defense and Security Studies, Professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba. I remember speaking with him way back then. That's how long both of us uh, have been around. But, um, yeah, in, in the context of, of everything that was going on at the time, you know, there, there was a lot of politics in, in Canada saying to the U.S., we don't want to be a part of missile defense. But it's just, it, it's untenable. That we want one foot in and one foot out when it comes to participating in continental defense and that shared responsibility. Uh, earlier this month, uh, we passed the 100-day mark, 100 days uh, since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And obviously, uh, you know, Russia's lofty ambitions uh, very much came up short terms of, you know, steamrolling toward Kiev, uh, the capital falling and, and all of this country falling under Russian control. Um, obviously, that didn't happen, and, and Ukraine has mounted a, a very brave and inspirational resistance, a, a resistance that continues. Uh, but certainly, uh, the Russians have not yet been defeated. And more recently, you know, the Russians have been making some advances uh, in the eastern part of the country. So uh, all of this very much hangs in the balance. And it is clearly very much, not just in Ukraine's interest, obviously, but I think in the West's interest, that Ukraine prevail. Uh, the Vladimir Putin in particular uh, suffer a defeat here. Uh, the Putin not being emboldened to go further. I don't think anybody's under any illusions. We shouldn't be that this all ends with Ukraine. So can Ukraine still prevail here? What's it going to take for that to happen? Our next guest, a really interesting op-ed in the Globe and Mail today, looking at how the West can help bring about that uh, crucial scenario. Uh, Earl Braun is a professor of political science and international relations at the University of Toronto, also an associate with the Davis Center at Harvard University. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Braun, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Uh, so as, as you assess the situation as it stands uh, in terms of where, where Ukraine is at, the extent to which Russia is, is succeeding, what's your assessment of where things stand? At one level, it's absolutely remarkable that Ukraine continues to fight back, that they have not uh, uh, fallen uh, as a result of the massive uh, Russian invasion, and that uh, they are able to resist. They have even taken some territory back. 
they pushed the Russians back in the north from around the Kiev area and a good deal of the Kharkiv area. But the conditions are very difficult. The Ukrainians are sustaining vast losses. Their economy has been grievously harmed. And the rest of the world is also suffering because Ukraine was a key provider of food. They were the largest exporter of sunflower oil, vast exports of, uh, of uh, wheat and barley. And all of those have been impaired. So it is a very uh, tough situation. But I think if we are to move forward, we need to be very honest as to where we in the West have failed. It's part of the problem that maybe the the West is almost losing interest. Uh, you know, that this was a, a big issue, right, you know, at, uh, at the cusp of the invasion, when the invasion began. But as this has dragged on, maybe, you know, the West has started to, to you know, put its attention elsewhere. There is a kind of uh, war fatigue in the West, and opinion polls in various European countries suggest that uh, many would be very happy to have some kind of settlement, which may be a very bad one, actually, for Ukraine, but they believe that somehow this would bring an end to energy supplies, that would lower inflation, and sadly, none of that is likely to happen. That, uh, at this point, helping Ukraine is really helping the West. And this is why we need to understand what exactly is at stake. This is not just uh, a charitable act where we are trying to uh, uh, behave in a moral fashion and to help Ukrainian refugees. This is a battle for the post-Cold War Europe. This is uh, a war that is being watched very closely by China. And should Russia prevail, then I think Taiwan uh, would be in danger and many other countries in Southeast Asia. So there's an enormous amount at stake. And in a sense, the West, by helping Ukraine, would be helping itself. Right. And, and this doesn't end with Ukraine, does it? I mean, if, if Putin succeeds, if Putin is, is victorious in Ukraine, that, that's, that's a very worrying omen, isn't it? Absolutely. And this is why I said that we need to understand where we failed, because the West had sent all the wrong signals to Russia. Instead of saying to Russia that uh, the West would do everything to help Ukraine, we kept, uh, particularly the American government, kept saying, these are the steps that we will not take. We will not send troops. We will not send uh, heavy armaments. We will not send anything but defensive weapons. The Germans, before the war started, would not even allow uh, uh, other countries like uh, Estonia to transfer old German guns that they had obtained uh, from Germany years before because they were so afraid of provoking the Russians. They had become so dependent on Russian energy. The West, by uh, following good intentions to deal with the environment, uh, had... uh, driven up uh, energy prices that had benefited Russia enormously. So Vladimir Putin felt tremendously emboldened in invading by believing that he had a green light. And also because energy prices had climbed so high that he had filled up his coffers. He had the sovereign fund with over $600 billion, and he believed that he would be sanction-proof. So what does Ukraine need at this point? How does the West need to step up, in your view? We need to move along the entire spectrum. They need political support. They need economic help. But ultimately, what is most important at the moment is 
that they need to prevail on the ground. And there they need heavy weapons. They have to have the artillery, they have to have the longer range rockets to take out the massive artillery, artillery that the Russians are using in a fashion that they had employed in the Second World War, even in the First World War, to just level cities. The Russian government is not restrained by international law or any sense of international morality. They will target not only Ukrainian soldier, soldiers, but civilians, whether it is uh, those who are in hospitals, children who are in schools, opera houses, they do not care. And so there is no choice. And we have to realize that very difficult fact that there is an incredibly brutal conflict going on. And as much as sanctions are significant, they're not going to do the job. You have to give the Ukrainians the tools. The Ukrainians are willing to fight. They're asking us to provide them with the weapons. They're not telling us that we should fight their, their war. What about Canada, though, specifically? I think certainly, you know, the, the Americans, the Germans, the Brits have, have the capacity to provide that. Canada's ability to provide those tools is somewhat more limited. Where, where does Canada fit into that? We have tried to provide financial help, and we have sent over a few heavy weapons, I believe four long-range artillery pieces. We don't have very much, and that is partly because we have drawn our armed forces down to such a very low level. And this has been one of the problems. This is what has emboldened Vladimir Putin. If you look at the Germans, they had so diminished their armed forces that about one-third of their aircraft could not fly. And the Russians took note of this. So the Germans now are busy trying to rearm, and they have committed themselves to spending an extra 100 billion euros on buying armaments and to spend uh, in the future at least 2% of their gross domestic product, which is a NATO goal. We in Canada, though we are trying to help the Ukrainians, we are not helping ourselves sufficiently. Our defense spending is way below the goal that was set by NATO that all countries should spend a minimum of 2% or of their gross domestic product. Russia is spending well over 4%, and even though Russia is only a remnant of the Soviet Union, it has built up massive forces that have not performed that well, but nonetheless have an enormous amount of firepower, which they are using in an indiscriminate fashion against the Ukrainian civilians. So we in Canada also need to help ourselves, and that helps Ukraine. If we can improve our armed forces, if we can increase the number of troops, we can better defend our sovereignty in the north. That would mean that Russia couldn't just divert troops away from uh, the Arctic. They have built up uh, armed forces in the Arctic massively, and there is a concern that some of those troops might be transferred by Vladimir Putin to Ukraine as he's losing very large numbers of, of troops. So we need to make sure that Russia cannot just switch forces from one area to another and focus on advancing Ukraine, where they are making slow but steady gains in the in the Donbass. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Professor Brown, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you for having me on. Much appreciated. Uh, Oral Braun is a uh, professor at the University of Toronto, also um, an associate of the Davis Center at Harvard University. You can read him in the Globe and Mail today at theglobeandmail.com. He says, with enough support, Ukraine can still defeat Russia. 
but that we need to provide that support. You often hear stories in the news from time to time about a high-profile criminal case that for whatever reason might have a publication ban imposed. And sometimes there's a need for a publication ban. Uh, You know, in terms maybe of uh, protecting certain evidence, protecting a victim, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, Information that could compromise the case or compromise uh, a victim if uh, publicly disclosed. But there is also the, the important and what should be the prevailing principle of open courts. The Canadians deserve to know what's happening in a criminal justice system. Just like you could go to the courthouse and sit in and observe a trial. This is all supposed to be done in the open. Uh, so publication bans should be rare. Certainly there should be, I think, an onus on, uh, whether it be the prosecution or the, the defense or even the the judge who agrees to it, to justify why it's necessary. And I think Canadians should be concerned if this is becoming more the norm. But how would we know? Where would one go uh, to find stats on how frequently publication bans are imposed? It's not really something we keep track of in Canada. Maybe that's why it makes it easier uh, for the courts to deploy this tool. Uh, A new investigation from the National Post uh, reveals that we have seen an increase, a 25% increase over the past two years when it comes to the use of publication bans. Joining us to talk more about this uh, special investigation, Justice in the Shadows, you can read more, by the way, at nationalpost.com, is reporter Adrian Humphreys. Adrian, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rob. Great to be here. Uh, like I say, we don't have any kind of a, a central database that, that tracks uh, how often publication bans are used in this country. So where, where does one even start in, in trying to, to calculate that? We sure don't. Um, you know, we, we started this project just with the anecdotally, uh, you know, our reporters in courtrooms across the country thinking, boy, I'm, I'm hearing a lot more about pub bans. But, uh, you know, the, we didn't know one way or the other how they were being used, who were using them, really why. And I thought it would be an easy case of just calling up um, justice ministries and courthouses and court systems and academics or law profs and someone surely tracked this. Um, But I found that no one really did. And um, uh, to to so so you know these things not only is there it's sort of like um, uh, a veil of secrecy over a veil of secrecy Uh, (laughs) you know things that are being kept secret but we didn't know how many or how often these things were being kept secret. So I decided I found a way, I thought, to, to try and uh, at least give a, a, a peek into, uh, into the use of uh, pub- discretionary publication bans, and we can right. go and discuss at some point the different types. But the, the, the use of these uh, across Canada, and I, 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 I created my own database here with uh, an assistance uh, from a colleague, and, 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 and we did get some sense. And, and at least over the two years we were able to study, uh, as you mentioned, we, 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 our, our anecdotal information was absolutely backed up by the, by the data that we found. So we've definitely seen an increase. That, that much we can now say with certainty. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and for some provinces, particularly in B.C., we were able at the end to get, um, the, after six months of asking the Attorney General to give us some um, even broader data and in, in that broader data, we've seen quite, we, we see quite an alarming 
uh, increase in discretionary publication bans over the last 10 years. So it's sort of a, a creeping phenomena that, uh, that is upon us. So what, what is the purpose of a publication ban? Well, I mean, at its heart, it's, it's to prevent people from knowing something that would otherwise be uh, known. Um, So when you hear something in court or a document filed in court or an exhibit or evidence is shown in court, the the, the principle is supposed to be that that's public information now. Um, You know, the whole root of courts, you know, uh, in in our past history was that the community would gather and and hear the the testimony and decide, um, you know, who's lying and who's not. And this information was to be public. Um, but there are some circumstances, as you noted, when, when uh, it, it seems like a really uh, sort of a good idea for justice to, to keep some things um, at least temporarily um, not publicly known. Um, and, and, and so it's basically to, to prevent information from being known. And sometimes that sounds like a good idea. And sometimes it seems like a really horrific idea. So the, the examples I'm familiar with, uh, one would be a, a preliminary trial where a case hasn't yet gone to trial. Uh, there's certain things presented in a preliminary hearing that could maybe potentially uh, affect, uh, you know, a jury pool. People hear certain details that, that could compromise the trial. Often we see publication ban when it comes yeah. to protecting victims or protecting children. Uh, again, it, it makes sense then in some of those cases to, to have a publication ban that applies to those details. Those are the ones we're familiar with. Those are the ones I think the public gets. But increasingly, it seems we're hearing about cases where the publication ban just seems to make no sense at all. Yeah, and, and, and there's different types, uh, as you know. So a lot of those ones you mentioned are mandatory. Um, some of them are even in law, like a pretrial evidence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a judge doesn't... A judge doesn't place a publication ban because there's already a publication ban placed on it by by the criminal code of canada there's other kinds where the judge says um uh, that where the law says if it's asked for it's automatically granted by a judge and then the third kind are completely discretionary and these are the kind that we want to focus on uh, obviously the mandatory or the statutory publication bans isn't really a, a, an issue um uh for, for the same sort of scrutiny. It's what the, the real scrutiny comes to when judges are having to make a call. And a lot of things come into play on this. Um, one of the main ones that, uh, that we, we were focusing on is nobody often knows that a publication ban is even being asked for. So there's no one there to object. There's no one there to press the judge to put some careful scrutiny you know how necessary is this publication ban is it just to protect someone who has a good lawyer's reputation or name is it just a a matter of convenience for an accused or for a a witness or is there a real need a real public need in the interests of society to to impose that pub ban and increasingly i think as media resources are are less and less there's less opportunity um, for challenges to the publication bans, and I think they're being used and perhaps abused by those with positions of good lawyers and good resources and, and uh, who, can, who can ask for and push for um, more secrecy than they probably should have. 
Yeah, your piece today, I mean, it gives the example of um, a situation in Newfoundland. There's a, a trial that's that's uh, going to start next spring uh, for a prominent lawyer who was charged with four counts of sexual assault. And for some reason, there was a publication ban placed on the identity of the accused. Now, news organizations became aware this was a high-profile case to begin with. So that, that was appealed, and eventually that was overturned. But there's an example of a publication ban that seems to only be there in the interest of, of protecting the accused. Well, yes. And in fact, although it was overturned, it's still in effect. Is um, it really? Because the judge agreed to allow that prominent lawyers, lawyers to appeal to the Supreme Court. Wow. So, so as of now, we have a trial scheduled for that man, um, but we cannot say who he is. And it's not a case, some people say, oh, well, it might identify the victim, but it's not a case. If it was a case where it could have identified the victim, then it would be a, a you know, would fall into these other categories of, um, you know, statutory and mandatory or um, types of publication bans. And it would be much easy to understand why. But that's not the case in this. The argument in this case is that he is a prominent lawyer and his credibility and his business might be affected if it is known that he is charged with, you know, sexual assault of a child. Right. So, it's a guy with good lawyers and good legal, you know, sense. He's a lawyer, a prominent lawyer himself, perhaps able to get something that perhaps you or I or many of your listeners would not be able to get. And that's where I, I think, I don't know if, if slippery slope is overstating it, but sure, anybody charged with any crime, you know, faces a you know, potential harm to their reputation. And ultimately, I think we in the media need to respect the principle and people in the public need to respect the principle of, of innocent until proven guilty. Absolutely. But this idea that, you know, we have to, to shield somebody's name because, you know, th- this, this could be troubling to the reputation. I mean, that, that's an argument for putting all of this, the whole system behind closed doors, uh, obviously yeah. open courts, uh, this, this principle, that means we report on these things. We do, and and you know it is innocent until proven guilty, and there's a place for that. And you know, uh, I was in my in my research. You know, I was talking to criminal defense lawyers, and they say, "Well, I think there should be more publication bans in the sense that, you know, there's an argument we made some of the European systems, for instance, where you don't name the accused before trial. But you know, that's not our system. That's not our law. And you know, the law should apply equally to all. So you know, uh, there's not a sense, uh, from my perspective, perhaps of 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 a, a guy with good resources and money and great lawyers should be have his uh, name protected when you know the vast majority of other people don't. And in a situation like that, I mean, you know, someone could still go sit in and watch the trial, couldn't they? Yeah, but they wouldn't be able to tell anyone about it, right? Which you is know, weird. and this is the thing. Like, um, you, you can usually say, you know, all uh, publication bans. It's a media issue. It's 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 about reporters complaining about how they do their job. But at, at the heart, it's not. It's not, it's not, the reporter gets to know, I can go into the courtroom, I will know the name of that lawyer. Um, it's the public's right to know, because the public, by and large, won't be in the courtroom. They're not able to sit in the courtroom. The media is the eyes and the ears of the public. Yeah. And so it's not a publication ban on preventing the media from doing something, really. It's really a, uh, a ban on the public knowing information often usually important information about the community they they live in and the community around them. That's what's really at issue here. Absolutely. Well, some important work, much more is mentioned, nationalpost.com. Adrian, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it.
Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate your interest in this. All the best. Uh, veteran reporter Adrian Humphreys uh, with the National Post, nationalpost.com, their special investigation, Justice in the Shadows. Why are we seeing uh, an increased use of publication bans? I think that's an important question. Just even before you get to that point, how difficult it was to even figure out whether this has, has been used with greater frequency. We don't keep track of all of this. And so much of this goes on, you know, far removed from the view of the public. Uh, a lawyer makes a request for a publication ban. Who's there to, to challenge that? Who's there to, to be a voice for transparency and openness? In most cases, nobody. You know, this case in Newfoundland is high profile enough that, uh, you know, the media were following it. And at least there was someone there to say, what the hell is this? So it was the media organizations that challenged that in court. The order was overturned but actually remains in place until this, this lawyer has a chance to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. Imagine a system where nobody ever knows anything about any of this. High-profile lawyer, or for that matter, even a, a high-profile politician can be charged with a crime, can appear in court, and none of this is known by anybody because we can't tell you about it. An interesting new study out today looking at an important question around minor hockey. At what point does it make sense to introduce body checking? You know, at what age are kids ready to have that physical element of the game? Obviously, it's, it's not going away, certainly when it comes to higher levels of hockey. You know, for U18, junior, you know, and certainly into senior and, and professional hockey, obviously that, that's a part of the game. And so there, there are some levels still for more rec play where, uh, you know, there, there isn't body checking. But, you know, for the most part in the competitive levels, uh, there is. When does it make sense to introduce it and how? There's been a line of thinking in this debate that it's better to introduce it at a younger age so kids have more time to learn it. And then once they get to those, those older levels, they'll be better at it. And by extension, then, there would be fewer injuries. But does that hold? So there's a new study today from the University of Calgary looking at that question and finding that it doesn't hold. That, uh, quote-unquote, experience with body checking doesn't lead to fewer injuries. Uh, so joining us to talk a bit more about the findings and the implications, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Paul Eliason, lead author of this study, postdoctorate scholar of the Sport Injury Prevention Research Center at the University of Calgary. Dr. Eliason, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. I, I guess part of the impetus for this study, which was partnership with Hockey Canada, Hockey Alberta, and Hockey Calgary, was, was kind of to answer that question, wasn't it, about the so-called experience factor? Yeah, exactly. So that's a, a really important question that the uh, hockey community is is wondering, and um, and that's what they've been asking their hockey associations with. Um, and so they've been um, pleased to partner with us to, to work on this and uh, try and provide some uh, scientific evidence to help answer that question. Now, I know some of these levels, you know, the, the, the names have changed, but, you know, previously uh, body checking was introduced at, at the peewee level, which is now U13, that got moved to the Bantam level, which is now U15. So we can sort of compare then, can't we, the, the experience? Yeah, so um, a few different things here. So like you mentioned, while well, changing the age, uh, when body checking introduced from U13 to U15. Um, so that was supported by uh, evidence as well. Um, it's really strong work 
uh, led by Dr. Kellen Emery out of uh, UFC as well. Um, and that showed significant reductions in the rates of all injury and concussion uh, when you compared those that played with body checking uh, to those that didn't at the U13 level. And then also more so, um, we've looked at it at the U15 and U18 age groups in those non-elite levels of play, uh, where some um, jurisdictions have removed body checking from non-elite levels. And we compare those to um, similar levels uh, that play with body checking. Once again, we show significant reductions in all injury and concussions. So that's kind of led to uh, what we're studying here is what the whole body checking experience issue and um, so this particular study uh, that got published is looking at experience in the under-18 age groups. This is uh, ages 15 through 17. Uh, however, we also looked at it in the under-15 group in a previous paper that was published earlier this year. Okay, so we're looking basically at, at prevalence of injury, that if the sort of experience theory holds true, then, then you know, those entering that 15 to 17 age group who had you know, longer experience with body checking, presumably then we, sh- we should see fewer injuries. But, but we don't, do we? No, exactly. I actually see the exact opposite. Uh, when we looked at the rates of injury um, and uh, concussion specifically, because we know that's of concern in, in youth ice hockey, we actually found that those with more experience, um, three or more years uh, specifically, actually had higher rates, uh, significantly higher rates wow. of all injury, um, injury that resulted in more than seven days loss, and concussion uh, compared to those that had less body checking experience. Do we know why that might be? Yeah, so um, we adjusted for, for many other important covariates in our statistical model that we uh, know might be relevant to injury. So, for instance, uh, the position that they play and then what age uh, what they were going into for their first or second or third year. Um, and one of the other covariates we adjusted for was whether they played in uh, elite or kind of sub-elite levels. And we think why um, those with more experience um, could be having um, higher rates of injury and concussion could be due to these uh, faster um, skill and speeds of play on the ice that actually wouldn't be captured by just uh, kind of a leader sub-elite so it could be within the gameplay um, that that we're not capturing that so what does it tell us about the the current status quo which i think is is in place for for the you know, the entire province of Alberta. I'm not sure what it is in other provinces, but the, the body checking is something that's introduced at what is now the, the U15 level. So kids going into the U18 category would have had two years, I guess, of, of experience with, with body checking. What does it tell us about that status quo? Yeah, so it does. The policy of when body checking should be introduced and what, what levels of play kind of varies across the country. Um, but, you know, this work that we're providing with our community or with our hockey associations um, really helps inform them not only for their recent policy decisions that they've made, but any future ones with regards to when they think body checking should be introduced um, and what levels of play should be introduced. Right. And ultimately, I mean, you know, and I think the impetus for this was to, to better understand the nature of these injuries. Uh, you know, it is to... It's about keeping the game safe, not necessarily about changing the game, but, but how do we in, ensure that it's as, as safe as it can be, right? Yeah, exactly. Like we're, This work is helping show that there's no unintended injury consequences um, that have happened from the body check and policy changes. We know that it's reducing injuries and concussions. And ultimately, this work just helps provide further evidence in support of disallowing body checking in, in youth ice hockey to help prevent injury, help keep kids um, uh, safe and, and playing uh, longer, and uh, that's ultimately what we want. And when we talk about these kinds of injuries, you know, I mean, what, is, is concussion the most common body-checking-related injury? Because, you know, that, that's obviously a concern in, in a lot of sports. 
is is that you know the big concern here? Yeah, still is. Um, so in, in this particular study, concussion was the most common injury type we saw, accounting for about a third of, of all injuries. Uh, we certainly see uh, other injuries, sprain, strains, broken bones, um, you know, and bruises, of course. Um, but actually, uh, a really, I say, um, shocking finding actually was prior to the body checking policy change that removed body checking at the under 13 age group. I mean, the rates of concussion were almost similar to the NHL. So it was really important that we uh, we focus in on concussion specifically to help um, uh, prevent those those injury types. Because we know there's certainly uh, could be some long term consequences with regards to concussions. Yeah, I mean, are there factors that have to do with you know the the varying uh, growth rates you know the kids have around that age that you see a real disparity when it comes to size and weight? Is that something you're able to factor in in assessing that? Yeah, so we, we were able to examine weight as well as, as one of our covariates in our model. Uh, we actually didn't find that weight uh, was a significant predictor of, of injury or concussion in this particular study. Um, in some of our previous work, uh, we have shown that weight, uh, weight is relevant, um, but not in this particular analysis. Um, you're certainly right. I mean, at these ages, um, we could see uh, varying sizes of players uh, on the ice as they're growing and developing. Well, some interesting and important findings. We'll leave it there. Dr. Eliason, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Take All care. Best. Uh, there you go. So that's uh, Dr. Paul Eliason, lead author of the study, postdoctoral scholar of the Sport Injury Prevention Research Center, University of Calgary. So, you know, spurred on by, you know, these, these um, organizing bodies, Hockey Canada, Hockey Alberta, Hockey Calgary, wanting to better understand this. Was it the right decision to remove hockey from what is essentially the, the peewee level? Or was it a mistake? You know, what, what can we learn from that experience? You know, kids who are going into U18 or midget, as it used to be called, with, you know, two years of, of body checking experience, maybe versus three or four. And so some interesting findings there, which would, would seem to vindicate that decision to introduce it at a, at a higher age. And you do have now those options, whether it's U15 or U18, you know, leagues where it's, it's non-checking, you know, because... You know, there's, you're still going to have injuries. Obviously, I think it's important to look at what can be done to reduce injuries, but you're not going to eliminate them altogether. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.